0: You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993-FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university. Well, welcome back to another episode of... The Vice Chancellor's Hour, VCHour, at buzzsprout.com. You can catch any episode you've missed. If you just check us out online, anywhere you get podcasts, you can download us for free. Yeah, doesn't cost you a dime. A little bit of data, but nothing to get it from us. And it has a lot of excellent teaching. You can find even more sermonaudio.com. You can find us there as well. I just want to encourage you, we're in the middle of a series against Christian pacifism, and it is one of those topics. If you haven't heard my previous episodes, you definitely need to before you start listening to these. We don't want to make the mistake of not having all of the information that we need in order to make the right decisions. And in order to do that, you're really going to have to go back to the beginning, listen to the episodes. I hope you'll hear this one. It will be profitable for you and it'll make you want to go back and listen to others. So we're working on this topic against Christian pacifism. Christians, the Scriptures teach, should be peaceable people. We should. We should be peaceable people. We should be known by our peace and the peacefulness of our religion. But it is a different thing to be peaceable or to be pacifist. Those are not the same thing, and it's very important for Christians to know the difference and to believe what the Bible says teaches. So that while the Bible teaches us to be peaceable, it does not teach us to be pacifists. We're going through those topics. In the first episode, we sort of set the parameters. In the second episode, we talked about whether it's always morally wrong for Christians to use violence, because many pacifists will tell you that because our God is a God of forgiveness and forgives his enemies, that we too ought to forgive our enemies. And in fact, We should. But the question is, does God always forgive all of his enemies? It's a complicated topic, I grant you, and it's one that's important that you make careful distinctions. So go back and listen to the episode. But the answer is, he does not. He does not always forgive all of his enemies. And you can see more about that if you listen to that first episode, and then the second episode will follow up on it. In the last episode, we covered. Whether or not God's perfect plan of peace for his people, the shalom he gives us in the Garden of Eden, whether or not that sets the example for how we ought to act in our lives now, that is, should we act as though the peace of God is already here on earth? And the answer to that, of course, is no. We live in a real world that has real problems, and God gives us real advice about how to deal with it. And we don't come to this conclusion from pragmatism, this idea of what's the most practical way to act, but instead we look at God's word. How does God teach us to interact in this world? It certainly is true that the prevalence of violence in the world is condemned, but it also is true that God gives us a way to interact even with violent people, and it's not always nonviolence on our part. But in fact, what some pacifists would describe as violence is sometimes, sometimes the correct and biblical response from God's people. There is zero, zero question about it. You can, again, listen to the episode for yourself. You can hear those details. We're pushing in on the Old Testament just to try to get an idea a bit about, about who God is and how he asks his people to operate in the world, sort of continuing with the same theme that we had from last week. But in more detail as this gets fleshed out, and I do want to give an opportunity, as I have in previous episodes, for you to hear how the pacifists themselves address these issues. I do want to warn you that sometimes The pacifists, when we deal with the Old Testament, some of them want to treat the Old Testament as though that was for a different group of people at a different place in time and not for God's people now. And so you'll have to keep listening to hear how I address that issue. We will touch on it a bit today. But the question for today is, is it wrong for all people everywhere to use violence, no matter the occasion or what's happening to you? If you believe that, there are a couple sections of the Old Testament that are very difficult to deal with. We're going to deal with two of them today. The first is the use of Mosaic law. We looked a little bit at what God tells us before Moses, right? So there's law before there's Moses, believe it or not, there is law. We talked a little bit about that in the last episode. In this episode, we're going to look specifically at Mosaic law, where there's a lot more detail, a lot more Individual situations and specifics about what's going on. And is it true that God is always against violence? Well, we can look at Mosaic law, even just snippets of it, and we can see that God, most certainly within his law, does sometimes have his national people enforce what pacifists would describe as violence. Against particular people. Now, if you've read your Old Testament, you've read those, especially those first five books of the Bible, it shouldn't be a big surprise to you that we find that that's the case. But in case you haven't read your Bible or you don't remember the details of it, there's a a section of law specifically dealing with ways in which the country and the religious authorities within the country should deal with problems that arise among the people of Israel. And Moses gets these laws from God himself. God gives these laws and he gives them to these people and does and we can comfortably say that some of these laws call for varying levels of what pacifists would refer to as as violence. Take for instance Leviticus chapter 20. There's several sections there dealing with different types of sexual sin. Take for instance adultery. Leviticus twenty, ten through twelve prescribes that in the instance of adultery, the appropriate response is, is violence. It's terminal, in fact. Both parties are to be eliminated because of what is a heinous crime, that they have desecrated something God has given to them as being beautiful, and that adultery is really a crime against not just two individuals, but against an entire community. And because of that, it's heinous, and it is ought to be treated as such. In fact, adultery is most often the word that's used, especially in the Old Testament, of what happens when people leave their religion. They go after other gods. It says they're committing a form of adultery. There's other more graphic words that are used as well. As though one is going to a prostitute, prostituting oneself there. It's such powerful imagery because, especially in the ancient Near East, but in many places in the world, false religion, pagan religion, and bad sexual practices, harmful sexual practices, are often put together. Now, I know that many people who are listening to me right now will hear the word adultery. And in a sense, I think. We've become so accustomed to it, that is, it's such a prevalent thing in our movies, and our TV shows, in our books, even in our real-life experiences, that we know people who've committed adultery, that we know it's not that uncommon. We know that our respective countries don't tend to take it very seriously, that is, they treat it as a trivial matter. Oftentimes, the legal authorities themselves don't even get involved. There have been recently, for instance, in the United States, there recently have been some civil suits brought based on old laws that are still in effect. But even those are notable, meaning they hit the news because people are surprised that it's criminal or injurious. In the case of a civil case, it's injurious. It creates injury to commit adultery. But the fact of the matter is, if you think about what adultery is, it's a heinous crime. You're taking a union between two people that was instituted by God that is sacred, and you are introducing someone else. That is, it's not an addition even so much as it is a destruction. It is the violation of a covenant. It's the tearing of a union. It's the pollution of something that otherwise is good. It's harmful. It's disastrous. And I know that we often treat it like it's no big deal. I know that. Many people treat it like it's no big deal. But I'm telling you, if you've ever seen someone whose spouse has cheated on them, it is a type of destruction. It is a destruction of family. It is a destruction of lives. And in fact, many people really don't fully recover from that type of injury. Why? They find it very hard to trust. They don't believe. They really understand It is violently destructive against something that God has made and given to us. That is exactly what it is. Now, don't take this as me saying there's no way that grace can be involved. It can be. Praise be to God, I have known people who through the work of the Holy Spirit and the conviction through God's Word have found ways by God's grace to work through those issues. But the fact that God's grace can cover it does not negate the fact that adultery is very destructive. I'm saying this knowing full well that it is likely some people who are listening to me say this strongly disagree with me, and they themselves think that perhaps it's overblown. But my standard is God's word. How do I know God sees this as a serious offense? There's a couple of ways I could know that. One is it's talk about it being a covenant thing and about God bringing two people together and it being Him appointing it. Go back and listen to my series on Malachi to hear more about that. I could point to the fact that it uses language like one flesh, or that when you violate marriage, you're doing violence to yourselves. That's the exact language in Malachi. You're doing violence to yourself, and we could talk about that. But I think maybe the biggest example is, what is the response? from a legal standpoint. How serious is God about this? And the answer is, adultery has a capital punishment, meaning the punishment for adultery is death. God takes this very, very seriously. It's part of his moral law, isn't it? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery is something that's forbidden by God's law. Not only that, when he had the civil and religious authorities address this issue. It pollutes you, it removes you from the community, and the enforcement of it is, in fact, death. Now, if we have younger listeners, understand we're going to get into some hairy issues here. Make sure if you're listening, now may be the time to press pause or or come back later. We have some things in here that the Bible talks about, so we're going to talk about them. But uh, they're not always easy or comfortable topics, but we do cover them. What does it talk about after adultery? It talks about bestiality. Bestiality, so this is when a, a human being has sexual relations with an animal, again, a defilement of who we are, and something, because of what it does to us and tells about us, is a type of pollution, and it's something for which violence, we are told, is the punishment. That is, people should be killed who engage in this form of wickedness, and it is wickedness. It's a violation of who we are and how God made us and how he wants us to use the precious gift of sexual relations. It's not for this, and it degrades who we are and I think also is a slanderous act against our creator as well, treating the beast as though the beast is a human, having relations with someone who is not your spouse, but in doing it in such a way that it's so very damaging to the person. In fact, believe it or not, even the beast is supposed to be destroyed. Even the beast. <laughs> the beast has to be killed because of this wickedness. You know, when you hear about this kind of thing, what a disgusting and terrible perversion it is and how we ought to be against it. In fact, a civilization ought to be against this type of activity. You can't have it. It goes against the very nature of how God made us, and certainly has planned for sexual relations, and the enforcement for it is death. Likewise, incest, that is, two people who are closely related to one another having sexual relations. It makes no difference for Leviticus 2017 whether one of them supposedly gives the other one permission, gives consent, as the modern people say. It matters not if both of them do. It matters not if there's a power play, meaning there's an older person, a younger person, Or whether there's someone who has more power, more goods, more wealth, and the other one needs them. It doesn't make any allowances for any of those things. It simply tells us that incest is something which invokes the death penalty. Again, it's a violation of God's created order, his goodness for us, and the way that things ought to be. Not only that, Exodus 22, 18 tells us that practicing witchcraft, that witchcraft itself should have a terminal sentence. Why? Because it is the invoking of satanic and demonic powers. It's a pollution of the goodness of God on his people and because it is destructive. Remember, many people are tempted throughout God's Word to be involved with other powers and other religions, and I don't know if perhaps some of my listeners are in that very category. Perhaps you call yourself a Christian, maybe you say, I had Christian parents, I was raised in the church, and so forth, but you dabble. You put your proverbial toe in the water, as it were. You play around with these dark powers, these worship of things that ought not to be worshipped. Some people, they try to hedge their bets. They try to say, well, yeah, I'm mostly a Christian, but these other powers, they exist. So let me see what I can play around with them a bit and maybe get a bit of their power or prevent a little bit of the harm I think they might do. Keep the eye off of me, put the eye on me, as it were. This is wickedness. The only rightful and good spiritual power in the universe is our God. And he is the only one to whom we should turn. And we should turn to him in the ways that he's prescribed for us. He has told us that seeking spiritual power anywhere else is a grave and a heinous crime. And how can we know how serious it is? Well, just as it destroys your soul... It invokes a destruction of your body as well. The punishment for it, the lawful punishment for it, was death. And then finally, Exodus twenty-one twelve. Perhaps you remember in the last episode we talked about how after Noah and the flood, God gives man a law, which is if someone is a murderer, they've taken the life of a human being, their life should be taken as well. In fact, it extends to beasts, and you might find also that Moses expands upon this as well, but the enforcement for murder is there in Exodus 21. Now, I'm very happy to say that God's Word does help us to distinguish different types of killings. They're not all treated the same way. Not every killing is a murder, and the best example for this is that if every killing was a murder, the executioner of the murderer would himself become a murderer, and then someone would be required to execute him. And of course, that would make him a murderer, and then he would need to be executed, and whoever did that would also be a murderer. Do you see how ridiculous that is? Instead, God says that murder is wrong, and the right response to that is for the murderer's life to be taken from him. And in so doing, it is a just act. It is a just act to take the life of a murder. But not all killing is murder. There's a number of situations outlined in the Old Testament and demonstrated in the history which are not themselves murder, which are the taking of a human life. It's very careful that we're able to distinguish those things because God's Word is able to distinguish those things. And notice also that this accords with what you might call a natural law. We have an understanding that not every time someone dies, has a crime taken place. It's always an unfortunate event in one sense. I mean, it does demonstrate to us that we live in a fallen world and that the consequences of sin is death. There is a sense of tragedy every time that that happens. There's no question in that. However, not all of them are criminal. That's a very different thing, isn't it? To say something is unfortunate is not the same thing to say that something is criminal. And this is an important distinction for you and for me. You see, when the pacifist mourns someone being executed for their crimes, I too can resonate with them that it is unfortunate that the world is this way. It is unfortunate that that type of person did that type of crime and merited that kind of punishment. And I can long for a day where that will no longer be true. What I can't do is live in this world, contrary to what God has taught to us and demonstrated for us, as though I am now in the world to come. I am not yet in the world to come. I have not found that this world is a perfect Garden of Eden that I will have in Christ Jesus forever. I am not yet there. And so it is both foolish and biblically illiterate of me to act as though what I am living in now is the restoration of the Garden of Eden. What I am waiting for is for my King, King Jesus, to bring that peace on earth in fullness and in power that I cannot experience yet except in part. I have down payments of it, but I don't have the fullness of it. So I can mourn with them that I live in this kind of world. What I can't do is pretend that I actually live in a different world. Now, pacifists do not deny that these verses are here, nor do they deny that they call for this type of response. So in that sense, you could say we're in agreement. How do they respond? Oh, it's very interesting. Again, you're going to hear me quoting Preston Sprinkle quite a bit from his book Fight, where he addresses this issue. I understand there's a few others mixed in as well, but I do think he has the best representation of this section of the argument, because I do think most other pacifists would rather that the Old Testament didn't exist or that it only applied to a different group of people somewhere else. And Sprinkle's take it has a lot more nuance to it than most of the others I've read. I think he's very representative of those who hold his position. He says, the law was not God's ideal moral code for all people of all time. Rather, God met the Israelites where they were and began to take incremental steps towards his moral ideal. nonviolence it's not just a New Testament invention, it's the capstone of the old. That's a fascinating take. There are some pieces in there that are certainly true, and there are pieces in there that I think are a misrepresentation of what God would have us to believe. We'll get into that in a moment. He also says, so the perceived strictness or violent nature of these biblical laws must be understood in light of other ancient cultures rather than I own. So Sprinkle recognizes that there are things in force in the laws that are there, and he says that our best move is actually to compare it to other laws, and by that we will find they are far more humane than other laws of their era and the surrounding region. You might say it this way, I hope this is a fair way to, to frame Sprinkle's uh, statement here, that if you were to compare God's law to the laws of the ancient Near East around them at the time, you would find that this is actually massively progressive. It's very different from those laws and much better, and it's only by comparing it to the present that we find that it's insufficient or violent. He goes on to say, Moses' laws of punishment, while seemingly harsh from our perspective, we much more humane in light of ancient Near East systems of law. I think I've represented him fairly and represented his words fairly there. The basic idea being that God has a moral code, but hadn't really given it to his people at all places at all times, but instead was like a, a sort of a down payment on a future target, right? We'll change a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there, so forth and so on, until we finally get to where we're trying to go. And in fact, you can see this progress just by comparing this law with other laws from the region of the same time, and in so doing, this law comes off as relatively nonviolent compared to other laws. This is often referred to as accommodation, this idea that God hasn't taken us where he wants to go, he's working with the fallen people, and because of that, he does things incrementally, or he gives something only to later show that there's an improved version of it. There are a lot of system of ethics, which are accommodations. And so we might ask ourselves, what are the boundaries of accommodation? I think the premier example from the Old Testament, and uh, this is where I'm going to I'm thank my buddy Dr. Travis Campbell. He and I's conversations about the nonviolent pacifist approach to Old Testament law helped to draw my attention to this a little bit and caused me to try to think about this in a little different way than I did in the past. Jesus, in Matthew 19, does speak of divorce code as a type of accommodation. So we can't rule out accommodation whole cloth. We can't. We can't say accommodation is a thing that never happens in the Bible, because it does. When it comes to God's law, there is accommodation. Why can we say there is? Well, Jesus does speak of divorce as a type of accommodation. He says divorce law, as interpreted by the people of the day, was not always so. He goes back to creation to point to the fact that divorce was not part of original creation. And then he positions towards the hardness of human heart. It is because of the hardness of human heart that we have divorce, right? Again, you can read Matthew chapter 19, especially verses 8 and 9. You can see this for yourself, right? Jesus goes on to permit divorce under certain circumstances. That is, he limits the application of divorce Under certain circumstances. Now, what's the great sin of the people that was being addressed? The big mistake that they make. I'm in agreement with uh, John Calvin as he looks at this passage here. He says the great mistake that they make was that the people of Jesus' day assumed anything that wasn't prevented was therefore lawful. Everything not prevented was therefore lawful, meaning it matches God's moral law. If God didn't have a prohibition against it, then you could do it without being in the wrong. Yeah, that's their mistake. And in fact, it seems that Jesus tells us that that's not the case. Just because something hadn't been written against something doesn't mean that it was good to do that thing. So far, so good. That really does seem, in the initial stages, perhaps, to support the case that God does sometimes have a law that accommodates. There's a couple problems with it. Do you remember what I said about Jesus permitting divorce under certain circumstances? Well, the pacifist's whole position is that Jesus' new kingdom is going to cause us to revert back to an Eden-like existence, that Christians are supposed to operate in this world as though we've gone back to Eden to find that shalom. And in that case, what you would expect is that it would go back just to what Jesus said. From the beginning, it was not so. Jesus does admit of an Eden that is not full of divorce. It's not there. And yet Jesus doesn't draw the conclusion that therefore divorce is always wrong. That's not the conclusion Jesus draws. Jesus specifically outlines the times and the ways divorce are justified there paul picks up the same theme again later in his writings so that divorce even though it's not what we find in eden is itself not prohibited in the new testament he outlines the ways in which divorce can lawfully happen so the question is how does this prove the case of the pacifist you see if the pacifist has to believe that because there's shalom in eden Therefore, we can have shalom today in Jesus Christ, which means in this world, nonviolence. Well, the problem is that's not how Jesus treated accommodation. He says we still live in a fallen world. Just because all of the Mosaic law didn't prevent all other types of divorce doesn't mean that all those types were good. And so at best, you can draw from the divorce example— The idea that we might view violence a bit differently now, that's very possible. And in fact, we'll see that actually exactly the case. But we can't draw the conclusion that Jesus is calling us towards no violence. In the same way, he's not calling us towards no divorce. He doesn't make that conclusion himself. He makes a very, very different conclusion. Another question this raises is, how is this different from Marcionism? How is this different from Marcionism? Now, you may be hearing that word for the first time and have no idea what I'm talking about when I say Marcionism. So just hang in with here for a minute, and we'll just try to explain it to you, and then I think you'll see why I'm raising that. There's an old heresy called Marcionism. Now, Marcionism has a lot of problems, and what I'm telling you is not the only problems. But it is a heresy declared by the church to be a heresy. doesn't fit with the scriptures and doesn't fit with what we understand about it. But it is very old. It was founded around 144 AD by a man named Marcion. And it did affirm the teachings of Jesus and Paul. Yeah, no doubt about that. But it rejected the teachings of the Old Testament and went so far even as to reject the Old Testament God. There's a a radical divorce is what it's been described as at times between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the New Testament writers, the Old Testament writers, and so there's a big split. I think maybe you're starting to see already what we're talking about. You see, that's often what the pacifists do with these Old Testament laws. I would say differently, incremental sense, perhaps, but they do it. Even Sprinkle tends to do this type of rejection of the law. For him, it's not God's perfect law. It's a thing he had to get through to get to where he was going. Now, this rejects the law of the Old Testament as a type of accommodation. It asserts, essentially, that only the New Testament law is the one that must be followed. Let me pause here. Now, this is very different from how Protestants historically have understood Old Testament law and New Testament law. This may be a question that you have for yourself as you think about this now. And that is, isn't it true that we don't follow all the Old Testament laws? And the answer for that, of course, is yes. The Old Testament laws, historically by Protestants, have been split into three different categories and treated differently based on the categories. By the way, those categories themselves come from the outline of the giving of those laws to God's people. That the first section of the giving of God's law deals with his eternal moral law, that is the Ten Commandments. And that the Ten Commandments, are in force for all people in all places at all time. You may adhere to, you may follow those laws, or you may reject those laws, but those are God's laws. So that when it talks about the law of God being written on our hearts, it is those laws. We know those laws are his laws. The second section would be referred to as the ceremonial law. And again, I've talked about this quite a bit in the past. We talk about the Christ of the feast and festivals, for instance. In great detail, we talk about the fact that there were certain ceremonies of the Old Testament whose whole purpose was to point us back to Jesus. They're signs, right? The scriptural language for that is types and shadows. And again, there's an episode on what are types and shadows. Really brief, I think 15 minutes or less, that you can check that out as well. Get more details about it. But the whole point, the biblical point, Outlined for us quite clearly is that it points us to something greater that is to come, namely Jesus Christ and his work in this world. Those ceremonial laws are about ceremonial cleanliness, so your ability to interact in a religious nature among the peoples of God. The third type are the civil laws. These civil laws were for the nation of Israel. Every nation has laws, and the civil laws for Israel were given by the lawgiver. God Himself. Now, God is always moral in the ways he interacts with his people, and for that reason, one of the ways that Protestants have described the importance of those civil laws for us is referred to as general equity. General equity means, like, it's basically, in general, it's the same. That is, we should be able to go back to those laws, not enforce them in details— but instead have a general sense of what God's teaching us, revealing to us, and that our laws, in some way, would be best to reflect those. That's referred to as general equity. Not the details, but the generalities. And there's great wisdom in God's law because God made them. And, in fact, if you go back and look at them and compare them to many nations that have been, in some sense, heavily influenced by Christianity, you'll see that there is often a general equity there. They often strongly reflect the values, though not perhaps the details, but the outlines of those old laws. It's very, very, very common. And so in general, we say the ceremonial law, because Hebrews teaches this, the ceremonial law is no longer necessary for us. It's been fulfilled in Christ. The, the civil law is there for us as something that's a general guideline, but not necessarily in the details But God's moral law is forever and ever. Pacifists, unfortunately, reject wholeheartedly the Old Testament law and need a reassertion of the New Testament in order for it to be followed. This is kind of strange because there's a lot of things that we all say are bad things that the New Testament itself does not condemn. So the specifics of sexual crimes, for instance, that we find in the Old Testament and that you and I would agree with, not all of those details are found in the New Testament. Is it that the New Testament then is telling us that those crimes are okay? Or is it, as I think we should expect of a first century Jewish people who saw a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that our New Testament authors understand what they're talking about and assume you understand it too because you have some knowledge of the Old Testament as well? So this radical division of the New Testament and the Old Testament doesn't make sense. We don't keep it, not even pacifists keep it consistently, otherwise there'd be certain sexual perversions that we would be open to, which we are certainly not. And also it's a misunderstanding of how the law works, the divisions of the law. Not only that, but pacifists tend to read extensively or exclusively from the New Testament to the exclusion of the Old Testament. Now again, I want to say I don't think Sprinkle, for instance— fits this and there are a number of people who are in that vein as well but i can point to more pacifists who see a radical difference between the old testament and the new than the ones who see continuity the old testament as Lasserre says in his book war and the gospel does not know of gentleness the benevolence toward all creatures of god the charity towards enemies which appears everywhere in the new testament notice here lacaire's he's disagreeing with sprinkle which is okay not all pacifists agree on all kinds of things Sprinkle is very happy to say that there's great progress in gentleness and benevolence and that it's a Old Testament as well as New, but Lasserre says, no, no, I look back at the Old Testament, I actually see a lot of violence, I don't see a lot of charity, And uh, but when I look at the New Testament, I do. And you, you can see in that quote the radical differentiation between the two positions. Now, I also happen to believe that accommodation creates a much bigger problem for pacifists then it solves. What do I mean by that? Well, what does God's word tell us about the law of God? Well, Psalm 19 says the law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The psalmist here has a view of God under inspiration of the scriptures, which elevates the law of God, the law of the Lord, to a very, very high level. This doesn't sound like a pretty okay half step between what exists and what I want. It tells us that this is good. In fact, it says it's perfect. I could go to so many passages just in Psalm 119, but Psalm 119, 160 says this, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Romans 7, 12 says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Old Testament and New looks at the Old Testament law as a good thing not a halfway house between what we have and what we will have, but as a very good thing. So again, this brings us back to this idea that even in things like divorce law, if we have an accommodation, it's an accommodation that doesn't allow every possible interpretation. Jesus confronts the interpretation of the people around him who believed that if God said you can't do something, it was therefore good. You may also notice that the type of accommodation, at best, that's being described by divorce, is a permission. Did you notice that? It's a permission. If this happens, you are permitted to react in certain ways. What it doesn't tell us is a positive command. And that's the biggest difference when we think about accommodation that's really a problem for me is God didn't say, It's okay to do it this way. He said, if this happens, this should be the result. Notice the difference between that and divorce. Divorce, as a clear accommodation of Scripture, is the result of the hardness of human hearts and can only happen, can only happen in certain circumstances. But it is not a required response in either the Old Testament or the New Testament to specific events. Just because someone wronged you in certain ways doesn't mean you must divorce them. It's not a positive command. It is a permission given because of the fallen and sinful world we live in. And yet, the violence described earlier in this lesson was all about what you must do in response to certain actions. It's not a permission. It's a requirement. There's nothing accommodating about that. God is giving us the just punishment for our sins. Now, we might move beyond even... Old Testament Mosaic law, and even think about Old Testament warfare. Old Testament warfare. God, we're told, is meant to do the fighting. That's a clear testimony of the scriptures. Exodus 14 13 says this The Lord will fight for you, and you will only have to be still. I love that. That's the people of God are backed up against the Red Sea. There's an army on one side and a Red Sea on the other, and they despair. And God tells them, like, I'm going to fight for you. You only have to be still. Many people who are pacifists have used that intervention of the Lord on behalf of his people as an example of the fact that the people themselves were never supposed to do violence. That's the pacifist interpretation of the Old Testament, is that God was the one who was going to intervene for them. They didn't have to intervene for themselves. Now, again, I said pacifists, but you need to know not all pacifists. I'll quote some who have this opinion so you can see it for yourself. Take, for instance, Yoder in his book, The Politics of Jesus. He says the victories were not a record of exceptional prowlness in the battle or mopping up, but rather a victory brought about by the Lord himself. So Yoder is telling us, his opinion of it is, that it's God bringing the victories. It's God doing it. He wasn't asking people to do it. He's negating the fact that the idea that the people were the ones who were supposed to be doing the fighting. It's God who is supposed to be Intervening. He says elsewhere, confidence in Yahweh is an alternative to the self determining use of Israel's own military resources in the defense of their existence as God's people. Yoder here is describing for us this idea that if the people had actually trusted God and God's work, Yoder doesn't believe they ever would have had to use their own military in order to defend themselves. Now, that's a very interesting position. It's interesting, I think, because God is regularly given credit for what he did. That is, a right view of the world is that when you have a victory, you give God thanks. When you escape from something trying to kill you, I don't care if it's a car, if it's a lion, if it's cancer, if you escape something trying to kill you, however you were rescued, you should give God thanks. You should. If the world is against you, looking to destroy you physically, metaphorically, spiritually, and you escape that, you should give God glory. Whatever means or methods were used, you should give God glory. I mean, how foolish would it have been if the people of God had thanked the Red Sea or really even just thanked Moses? Moses didn't do it. It's God doing it, so we should, we should thank God for it. But do we draw the conclusion from that? that human beings should always be stepping to the side and looking for miraculous intervention from God instead of using violence. Well, the problem with this is that the words we're given are quoted from Moses, and they're to the people of Israel. That is, Moses is telling the people of Israel these things, and among the many things he tells them is that God uses human agency. Human beings are involved directly and indirectly in every part of this. In fact, Moses himself participates at varying levels in the violence. I mean, even the Red Sea incident used Moses to help bring the judgment against the Egyptians. 1421 of Exodus says Moses outstretched his arms, and that was used by God to open the sea. And that Moses closed his arms, verse 26, and that closed the sea. Now, again, you and I both know that it is God working through his man, Moses, to accomplish these things. But it does no good to say, therefore, Moses wasn't involved. Moses was intimately involved. You've heard me talk about this story before because I think it's such a powerful story, but think about David fighting Goliath. Think about David fighting Goliath. Who does David say is being insulted by Goliath? Well, he says, Jehovah, Yahweh. The one true God is being insulted by Goliath. And Goliath was, in fact, insulting God. Now, let me ask you a question. Who fights Goliath? Who picks up five smooth stones? Who has a sling in his hand as a weapon? Who then hurls those stones, that stone, at Goliath? And who cuts off Goliath's head? The answer to all those questions, of course, is David. David does every single one of those things. But then who gives credit to God? David doesn't say, look, I'm awesome. He says, Yahweh won the victory. David is a bit of a theologian, my friends, and we ought to be theologians like David is. David recognized that the strength, the power, the aim, the courage that he had all came from God, and his job was to apply it correctly in the given situation we found himself. This is why in Psalm 144.1 we read, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. This is a person, this psalmist understands how violence in the world works. When someone is doing the right thing, They are rightfully and lawfully protecting life against murderous and violent intentions that if they have the triumph, they give thanks to God. Why? Because it's God who makes us capable. You can be the most skilled person on planet Earth, but you didn't get there all by yourself. God made you. And not only that, apart from God, you would fail. You can be the worst possible person, not particularly skillful, not particularly good, But if God is in it, you can win where you shouldn't. We see this a lot of times when we talk about the Old Testament battles. These guys shouldn't have won. They didn't have the technology. They didn't have the weapons. But they had God on their side. And yet, it's foolish to say they had no part in it. Of course they had part in it. Of course David is the one who's slinging the rock. Of course it's the people who are fighting against the Amalekites. Of course it's Moses who's holding up his hands and then putting down his hands that opens the sea and closes the sea by the power of God. But was Moses his agent? And so what we actually find is this is a great example of when we're doing things rightly, we are doing what God would have us to do. And when we do them wrongly, we are not doing what God would have us to do. Now, I want to hasten to add here something I've said before and I want to say it again. These episodes I'm bringing to you are not because of any particular historical event that's going on right now. I don't want you to think that. I don't think for a second that I'm teaching these things because of something you're reading in the newspaper, something going on in your country. I have a worldwide audience. I'm not speaking to just one person. I think I've had people from more than 60 different countries listen to these episodes, and you would be ridiculous if you thought I was talking to just you, because I'm not. And I didn't write this for anything that's going on right now. I've studied this and worked on this for years and made adjustment to it for years. This is just the teaching for today. And not only that, but there are aspects of a way that the nation of Israel worked in the world to subdue enemies that are different from what God has given us to do. We do subdue our enemies, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit through the teaching and preaching of God's word. It's not by violent confrontations. And the pacifists are very right in saying that. But that doesn't mean that God is never in it When we defend ourselves or fight for innocent people, God can be working in that. If you have the victory, it's no good to only say, well, God could have done it miraculously. Of course he could, but more often than not, he uses willing and obedient human agents who do what he would have them to do to bring about the victory. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. God commands warfare to his people. So it's no good to say, well, God would not have his people to be violent. He told them to be violent. It's no good to say, well, God would have done the victory if you just stayed out of the way. Deuteronomy 24 says, the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. He's going alongside you, there's no question, and you will get the victory because of him. But what else does Deuteronomy 20 say? When the Lord your God gives it into your hands, you shall put all its males to the sword. You shall devote them to complete destruction, Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. So you notice that the two things are both true. That's really the gist of understanding God's word is these two things are both true. The pacifist makes you want to decide that only one of those things are true, that maybe only God was the one who was going to get the victory. But the Bible says it is God who gives us the victory, Deuteronomy 20, verse 4, but also he would have his people to do specific things. Now, this section in Deuteronomy 20 is a hard passage, and I just want to hit pause here to say that at some point we are going to have to work through what that looks like. These are some hard sayings, but for the point for today's episode, I just want you to hear very quickly that God clearly called them to do some violence on his behalf. He didn't allow it. He didn't offer to do it for them. He commanded them to do it. You got to rest in that. That's actually a very important thing for you to think about. For our next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about how the violence that God calls for in the Old Testament is different than what many people think it would be, and how, may say so, how Sprinkle is very right about his comparison between the Bible and the ancient Near East. And we're going to think about what that means about you and me moving forward. I hope this has been very helpful for you. My prayer for you is the same as it's always been, that the God of all peace will grant you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993-FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university.